Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, have dating apps killed romance? 2021 is set to be a season of love for singletons unleashed from lockdowns, with more of those looking for love or possibly just lust online and on apps, swiping their way to a possible date. Apps have become the modern cupids. They're an established presence in the mating game. But they've also come under fire for fueling a toxic hookup culture that puts a sting in romantic endeavours. My guest this week is Whitney Wolf Hurd, the founder of Bumble. Her dating app broke away from the pack. Women strike up the conversation first and body shaming is firmly out of bounds. She wants to level the gender playing field Why wait around moping for a man to ask you out, she argues. And it seems like more than 40 million users worldwide agree. But she's turned her app into a wider social network too, for those looking for friends and business partners. There's always a buzz around Bumble and its queen bee. She became the youngest woman to take a company public this February and rang the Nasdaq bell while bouncing her one-year-old son, Bobby, on her hip. It marked the moment she became the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. So, Whitney Wolf heard, it's a date. Welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much for having me today. So let's talk about Bumble, which is the company you founded in 2014. Its USP is that it is a site in which women have to initiate the first move when they match with men, prospective uh, male partners. And you've written on Bumble's website that you were driven to create it because for all the advances women had been making in workplaces and the corridors of power, gender dynamics of dating and romance still felt very outdated. What was outdated about the oldest business in the world? <laughs> yeah, no. So, you know, this is this is pretty typical around the world in heterosexual relationships, even today. The expectation for a man to be the first mover. This is something women have been told and men have been told from very early days. And when you look at a woman who is making all of these advances in her life, she's being told to excel in school and to get a great career and to support herself and to be independent and to be self-sufficient but never speak first when it comes to relationship. This is really the way we've been trained and that that sets both women and men up for such failure. And we're speaking about heterosexual relationships right now. And we do believe that gender dynamics do play into all relationships, but that the intention here was truly to say, what is going wrong here? 
why when when women and men are dating, do women feel the pressure to wait for a man? This three-day rule, I can never message first. Why hasn't he called me? Why hasn't he texted me? And we've all been brainwashed to some degree with this understanding that that's just how things are. Now, something fascinating started to happen back in early 2012, 2013, the explosion of online dating took place, right? So all of a sudden you have this group of individuals looking to date and now they're doing it digitally. And the internet is a very toxic place. The internet really just replicates behavior in the real world, but it eliminates all the guardrails or all of the barriers to create better behavior. So I started to recognize these two fundamental issues collide. And that first issue was, why are women waiting around? They're never making the first move. They're essentially just giving away all their power. And then the second issue is, the internet is such a toxic place. So when a woman does get on the internet to you know, perhaps pursue dating, she's inundated with a stream of harassment, abuse, um, and and bad behavior. And so these were the the themes I was looking at before I came up with the concept of women sending the first message on this platform. And how do you measure success? Because uh, as you've just alluded to, it's also a tech platform. You can measure everything that's going on What's the metric then for for love and and dating? The app's free. It has about 3 million users paying a subscription for premium features on top of that. So if you put aside the finances, which is a pretty good metric to have in a business, but you also say you want to create a more equal dating environment. How could you measure that? Early, early on, a strong measurement, which is something we still watch very closely, was women making the first move. So let's just go back. But if you go back to 2014, when I said, you know, on this product, by the way, the idea of a dating app was not, there was no brilliance in a new dating app, right? There had been dozens of dating apps. There was nothing novel in that. What what was really special about Bumble was that women made the first move. So so back to the beginning again, we were told, and I was told in particular, and mocked and laughed at and it was really um, a kind of a dark time. The first few years of Bumble, people were really spending most of their time telling me why it wasn't going to work and teasing me. And the metric we tracked was women making the first move. So, you know, we would hear people say, this is ridiculous. Some commentator saying, this is so stupid. Women don't make the first move. Women should never make the first move. Boom. All of a sudden women were making the first move. So that was such a strong metric for us. It still is to this day, but you know, good chats is the hero metric. It's, it's two way chats, right? So when someone speaks first and the other responds and it starts leading to good conversation, that's a great metric for us to, to look at. So where then would you factor in the proofs of of the other side, the more negative proofs? Because the claim is you made the dating experience better for women. That's your focused intent. But you've got a relatively high number of written warnings and suspensions where users violate guidelines. So it would suggest you don't entirely get around those behavioral problems that you set out to solve. We never thought that we would be able to eliminate bad behavior. What we said and what we've strived to do from day one and what we're still trying to do, it's it's not necessarily what happens, it's how we respond to it. 
and what we do about it, right? And how we try to prevent it. So there's never going to be a society on planet Earth, whether in the real world or the digital world, that is free of bad behavior. It just doesn't exist, right? You can have neighborhood watch and you can have all sorts of things in place, stop signs and speed bumps to deter bad behavior. You're still going to have the person that chooses to speed, right? And so we recognize that. We recognize that we cannot completely change the human behavioral system, right, by this product. That's certainly not the claim we've made. But what we can do is this. We can have very firm guidelines that other digital platforms do not have, nor have they ever had. We can be the first mover to have these pretty, some would call it aggressive, some would call it incredible. It depends on what side of the table you sit on 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 that topic. But these guidelines that really prohibit certain behaviors, right? So we were the first to make moves saying we are going to ban things like guns. We are going to ban body shaming. We are going to ban hate language. We're going to kick you off if you do these things. And nobody across the tech system is taking stances like that. In fact, you look at the majority of tech testifying on on Capitol Hill saying, "Uh uh-oh, well, sorry, we didn't do this, and we probably still won't, right? And so this is such a different approach, and it's one that has polarizing opinions on both sides. But for us, our Northern Star is creating a kinder, more accountable ecosystem for people to build healthier relationships. Let's talk also about a a context that many tech companies are taking a lot more seriously. And that's the experience of people of color, many of whom say they've had very negative experiences on dating apps. I just happened to uh, ask one of my daughter's friends, as a young woman of color, would she use an app? And her immediate response was, no, I wouldn't. You know, I'd be worried about the the way that the people might be targeting me because of my skin color or fetishizing me in, in some way. And I think there's a report that said generally black women receive the fewest matches on dating apps. And I wondered how much you had factored in trying to address that. I'm really glad you brought this up. This is an incredibly important topic, not just on dating platforms. We have a very, very passionate team. They are committed to, I don't want to say they are going to be able to solve these issues. These issues, of course, are bigger than than just our one platform, but we are very focused on how can we in the future, we're working on this now, how can our algorithm be a part of the solution? How can our product guidelines be a part of the solution? At Bumble, we have just come up with a program and campaign against fetishization. And this is all an effort to, one, draw awareness, to educate. And then three, we behind the scenes are actively both aware of the issues and, you know, trying to be a part of the solution. So we have a very passionate team. Is Bumble perfect? Absolutely not. Have we found every solution? Absolutely not. I don't think there is a solution. I think it's always a work in progress to be more equitable, right? There's never going to be a solution. You've said one of your biggest mistakes was not prioritizing diversity sooner. I don't just lay that at your door because I'm pretty sure that an awful lot of our listeners in business and beyond will be having the same feelings about about themselves. But what do you think you missed and why did you miss it? What I meant by that, and I think it's healthy to be self-aware, it's healthy to own your shortcomings as a as a business and a team and a leadership team. Otherwise, you can never improve. And 
think, you know, if you want to run a world-class business, you have to improve every single day. But when I was starting Bumble, I was trying to solve a problem that I personally had experienced, right? And I was trying to solve a problem for women directly around me. And the sad reality in hindsight is that those women looked like me. Those women had similar similar struggles that I did. And so when you are trying so desperately to get a product off the ground and you're working sometimes around the clock for years just to make it survive, dodging different challenges and hurdles all day long to have the foresight to say, oh my gosh, why am I not thinking about this woman from this background or this woman of color who's experiencing this in a very different way? I was 24 years old, newly 25. Sadly, I was not that evolved to be taking every single different woman into account. And so that's when I say not prioritizing diversity from day one. It was certainly not with malintent. It was that, you know, when you are running a marathon, just trying to survive, it's really hard to look outside of of, of just that tunnel vision you're in. And, and so I would say if I could go back and do it all again, I would have certainly wanted to hear and and have the voices of of a more diverse group of women in the room on day one. But we can't go back. We can only go forward. And so that's been a big focus of ours is how do we make sure that women have a voice in these decision-making processes? So what do you say to the criticism that dating apps have contributed to the rise of hookup culture catering a lot to people who only want one night stands and have apps dehumanized the dating experience in any way for, and I'm sure you're going to tell me it's made everything a whole lot better. And actually there's a bit of me that just thinks, gosh, you know, my life would have been so different if they'd been around you know, when, when I was a, a young woman before I sort of got married in about 1843 or something. Oh my gosh. But, yeah, what, what is anything, is, is anything lost along the way? Listen, there's pros and cons to everything. And I'm definitely not going to sit here and tell you that dating apps are perfect and any technology platform is perfect. Just like some new creation has incredible benefits, there's always a downside to everything, right? And I think where Bumble stands apart and where Bumble has really tried with genuine, pure intention on this topic has been as long as the woman feels in control and as long as the woman doesn't wake up full of regret and shame and blame, that's a win because this hookup culture is happening with or without technology, right? And anyone that wants to argue that, I would love to have a further discussion. It's happening because guess why? Humans at certain ages, in certain situations, that's what they do. That's what they search for. And they will find it in the streets or they will find it on their phone. That's just how the world works. And that desire and that demand and that need, regardless of what your opinion or my opinion is, it's never going anywhere. Yes, but have dating apps put something of a rocket booster under sex drives, so to speak? You know, I I can't answer that question specifically because I I don't know if I have the answer to that. But what I will say is we've always said to the women on our platform, if you are looking for something casual, just make sure you're in control of the experience. Make sure you're not doing something because you're being shamed into it, because you're being blamed into it, because you feel like you owe someone something. And we've really tried to take apart 
the way a woman feels in the hookup culture, right? And even offline, this is not just digital. What what happens to a woman in hookup culture? Well, let's actually look at this for a quick second. If a woman and a man do have a casual encounter, you know, the way pop culture and media and, and television have, have shown us is that the man the next day, you know, fist bumps with his friends. It's a bragging event. It's a, it's a win. It's a, it's a cool thing. And the woman is left either trying to pretend it didn't happen, feeling shameful about it. She's hiding under the, the covers like, oh no, I feel so bad about myself. Why did I do this? And so look at that dynamic, how broken that is, right? And so that's the issue there. It's not necessarily that two individuals with consent want to engage in something casual. It's that the way gender dynamics have put the shame and blame on women. And so we're trying to lean into really encouraging women to feel empowered in whatever they're looking for. And if they don't want that, do not do that, right? And so Bumble is about giving control and power to the women. The brand is built very strongly around female empowerment and feminism of the sort of corporate variety, or perhaps not only corporate, but sort of institutionalized feminism is in demand now. Do you sometimes feel that you might be cashing in on a, a trend to sort of dress everything up in feminism that might just be a good idea for a good business for the reasons that you reflected. The fundamental things apply. People like getting it on together. I think anybody could find that lens. We're an easy target for that for that conversation. But I started this business in 2014. This was before the fallout of women in tech. This was before Me Too. This was before Time's Up. We have been going out the door saying women make the first move. Women be in control of your experience. Women change the rules of the game. You you have your voice. You have your power. Own it. We've been saying that before the fallout of of this masculine conversation, which has led to a resurgence of of a lot of you know empowerment for women. And am I sitting here claiming that we we are responsible for any even micro part of feminism? Absolutely not. You know, we never woke up and said, oh, let's go cash in on this trend that's coming around the corner. That was not, that's never been the focus. This has been built with genuine intent and authenticity and just a real desire to say, let's simplify this. I hate that I have to wait to send a message to a guy. Why am I crying over boys all through my college years? Why are all of my friends, why is my sister, why is every woman I know agonizing over relationships with men. This is broken. This is wrong. And when you reduce it down to why is this happening, it's because he's the boss. He's the boss who says hi first. He asks for the number. He approaches. He asks out on the date. You know, I've had conversations with my grandmother about this. This has been a plague of of women's lives for far too long. And that was the intention. It was never, oh, let's go put feminist on a t-shirt and sell it for $25, which by the way, we don't do. And I'm glad that that feminism has become popular because it means we're changing the narrative and people can criticize that. But I do think we're going in the right direction. You're a leading woman in the tech industry, and it is an industry that's had a hard time retaining women. There's research from a couple of years ago showing that women in the US leave the tech sector at twice the rate of men. So why aren't more women attracted into it? And how can the industry keep them once they get there? So I'm certainly not an expert on this topic. I have my own personal beliefs, right? I don't, I, I'm not going to speak with any data behind it. I'll never forget being a 13-year-old 
in junior high school in Salt Lake City, Utah. If as 13 years old, you're not encouraged or persuaded to explore STEM, how can you expect a woman to all of a sudden show up and apply to be an engineer when she's 25 years old, right? And so I think I think there's a big gap. But the amazing thing is there are incredibly talented women out there. And I do believe that a lot of technology companies have not been inherently friendly to them, right? Where is the pumping room for the new mom? Where are these considerations for women in the workplace? And I think it's a mix of a few things. I think it's a mix of the way we socialize youth and encourage them into certain fields or lack thereof. And then I also think it's about the way we treat the the team when they are there and if if it feels welcoming or if it feels alienating um, and how we select our talent, right? I think there has been bias over the years. I've seen it happen with certain engineers who want to hire another engineer that they know and so on and so forth. And the point I'm trying to make is I think that this is a very loaded issue and one that is improving. Just as we're on the, the borderline of society and and politics or political views quite a lot of the time in this conversation. I know that you helped spearhead the creation of a cyber flashing bill in Texas and your social media feeds are often used as a platform for driving broader social change. You had a post on Instagram and a list of LGBT organisations that you support recently. Uh, We wrote a piece about CEO activism recently, a cover in The Economist. I don't know if you caught it. Our take, which I hope you'd be interested in and our listeners as well, is that it's an inherently a risky business. It's hard to get right and that promoting a political agenda can have a bit of an internal monoculture downside because people think, oh, the boss is really into this or against that. I'd better get on board. Are these considerations that you take seriously? What we've always done is said, we are going to advocate for anything that really pushes our core Northern Star mission, right? How do we make the internet safer, kinder, more accountable? And how can we help uh, be a bridge to healthier and more equitable relationships? And so when you look at the cyber flashing bill, what we call unsolicited loot photo bill, this is just a, a simplistic derivative of of our intentions internally. Essentially, where that stemmed from was my personal frustration with reading the the reports, right? So we had built this software to detect bad images or inappropriate images. And even as we started to roll that out, you know, there were still instances of people exposing themselves without explicit permission. And it was this flashing that was taking place, not only on Bumble, but across the internet. We were hearing about women receiving it through email or through AirDrop or Instagram or all these platforms. And I I said to my team, I said, what laws exist here? Because we can build all of the product features we want and we can we can try to prevent this as much as we possibly can. We're doing all of these things to intervene, but why is this still happening? So I said to my team, can somebody please go get an audit of what laws exist around digital unsolicited lewd images, which is essentially indecent exposure, but in the digital world, right? And indecent exposure is a very serious consequence in the real world. Yes, you you make me realize how much we almost used to take it for granted that occasionally this would happen. And you think, why did we take it for granted? Right. Why? When the audit came back, it was alarming how few things existed to actually create a safe ecosystem for 
women and children and everyone across the internet. It just didn't exist. You have all these incredible laws in the physical world to protect you on the streets, but we're walking down the streets on our phones. Is your answer, well, we have to intervene as political CEOs or become a bit political because the laws weren't there. Is that, am I putting words in your mouth? In that moment, I felt that it was right for us to get involved and to intervene. And if that's considered activism, then then so be it. But I think to go and be an activist CEO just for the sake of it is not necessarily the path that we take. We really are just chasing the issues that our customers are facing. And if we see gaps and we feel that the legislative process can help us keep our community safer, then we will pursue that. I read that Bumble's HQ is filled with mantras to live by, uh, including, of course, make the first move. So I don't think I'm going to allow you that one, Whitney, because you're too well known for that one. So (laughs) what's a business mantra that you'd like to pass on to our listeners? And if you've got one for love as well, we do have a softer side at The Economist. So maybe maybe one of each. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Let's see. For business our values have been really important to us. So I think we always say being nice and being kind are two very different things. There's so much purpose in being kind versus being nice. Being nice is saying, oh yeah, that's great. Good job. Bye-bye. Or just telling people what they want to hear. Being kind sometimes means delivering tough news. Being kind sometimes means doing the hard thing when it's the right thing. We've really tried to redefine what the word kind means in the context of business because I think people expect it to be sugar and butterflies and honeybees and all sorts of things. And it has kind of created some pushback, but being kind is honestly being, it's being honest, it's being respectful, it's being accountable for both your work, but also for our community and for our mission. And so we've really tried to say, let's be kind, let's not be nice. And is that going to apply to our romantic quest then, or do we need something else to live by? No, 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 that does. And I was just going to say the same thing applies to romance. You can let people down in a kind way, and you can pursue what you really want in a kind way. I think there's been too much nice, right? There's been too much nice, and people think just disappearing is nice. The way people have skirted love through digital or real world has been this broken system that has hurt a lot of feelings on both ends. And so I think take this approach to being kind in love. If it's not working, be kind and and do the right thing and be honest about that. Or if there is that person you really do want to meet, be kind to yourself and, and go make the first move. And so it is actually a mantra that applies to everything. Whitney Wolf heard, thank you very much for being nice and kind, but probably in the other order, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'd love to know what you think. Have you used a dating app and what were the consequences? Did it fuel the passion or turn it all into an algorithmic romance? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And while you're at it, why not start a lasting love affair with The Economist today by becoming a subscriber? For your best introductory offer and to take our relationship to the next level, subscribe to all of our great content at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer hooking us all up today was Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs> 